Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Gemma Milne, author of Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. She is a science and technology writer whose works have been featured in the BBC, The Times, and she is the co-founder of Science Disrupt, a media outlet covering advances in science startups, research processes, and industries such as space, energy, health, and computing. She works with the World Economic Forum as one of their global shapers, and she is also an advisor to the European Commission and Innovate UK, helping them decide which scientific innovations should be funded with government money. So she's basically a very impressive person. On the podcast today, we are talking about her book, Smoke and Mirrors, and it's been called Fascinating and Vitally Important by Jamie Bartlett, who is the author of People vs. Tech and the host of the Crypto Queen podcast, who has also been a guest on Control-Alt-Delete. And the book is about the role hype plays in influencing and sometimes derailing crucial progress in science and technology. Each chapter focuses on a different area, and I found it really interesting, a book that kind of covers such a wide range of topics, from cancer therapeutics to the food industry to fusion energy and AI and quantum computing. If that all sounds a bit scary to you, Gemma does this brilliant thing where she breaks it all down in a very conversational, chatty tone and really opens up some quite intense topics and makes it a lot more digestible. So I really recommend grabbing a copy if you're interested in science and technology. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We recorded it remotely. It was one of my very first remote recording tests. So um, apologies that the sound quality isn't amazing in this one, but I hope you enjoy it nonetheless. If you liked it, please do let me know and I will see you again next week. So my first question, after reading your book last night with a glass of wine and feeling very inspired, but also quite intellectual, Ooh. it was the first book I've ever read that takes me through quantum computers in a way that felt like I could wrap my head around it. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. That was the the kind of goal of it, to be honest. <laughs> but obviously, you are an incredible writer on the topics of science and technology. You've been featured in, I mean, everywhere from the BBC to Forbes, and you do so many amazing events, and you work with South by Southwest and all these incredible places. But I read in the book, and I didn't know this about you, but that you did work in advertising beforehand, mm. and mm. that you made a pivot into the work you're doing now. And I just wondered if we could start there for any sure. listeners who wonder how someone does become a science writer how did that all play out for you well it wasn't so much of a pivot I mean I was I was made redundant from my job that was actually what happened it was in 2016 and at the time I was working in the corporate innovation team within Ogilvy it was called Ogilvy Labs before then I'd been you know an account person on Amex um didn't like that and moved into this more sort of tech and science role within Ogilvy so it it was a really fun role my job was basically just to I don't know, go around and meet interesting startups and interesting people and try and tell Ogilvy and its clients how to live and work in the 21st century. So it was a pretty fun job. But in 2016, Ogilvy was making redundancies across many different departments. And in the end, they shut down the entire innovation team. Not that it was that big, it was only four of us, but we were all made redundant and really quite out of the blue. 
And at the time, you know, I was sort of in my early 20s. I'd always been a high achiever and I was kind of like, oh, didn't really think that that was going to happen to me. wasn't really part of the plan. But I was in a really fortunate position because I'd been in this job where, you know, I was essentially paid to network. I'd built up quite a nice little, I guess, black book. And my boss, you know, she decided to tell the press about what had happened and the advertising press. It was it was quite a big story at the time because Ogilvy is such a large um, advertising firm. And so a lot of people heard about the fact that I'd been made redundant and they reached out and said, hey, do you want to do a bit of consulting work? Do you want to you know, write a piece of thought leadership for us? All that sort of stuff. And I never, ever thought I would be a writer. It was only because of those sort of jobs popping up and people saying, hey, you know loads of stuff about science and tech and advertising and innovation. Can you come write a piece for our blog or whatever and we'll pay you? And at the time, I just did loads of different jobs. I just said yes to everything because, you know, I, I don't come from tons of money. So I didn't have any savings or anything. I got statutory redundancy. So it was basically like, I just need to get money in the bank in order to pay rent. And I just, I don't know, the writing work I loved. I loved being able to focus more on science and tech as opposed to advertising. You know, more opportunities were coming up to write specifically about tech. And I did a lot of public speaking and I guess it all just felt like I was doing the same thing, you know, thinking of stuff, trying to process it and then tell people about it in different kind of ways. And just over time, I was far more interested in science and tech and now I've lent very much into that and only that. And I don't really do as much advertising stuff anymore. <laughs> it's interesting as well, because I guess in the book, you've been able to have a critical eye on the advertising industry as well. Now that you've kind of stepped, stepped away from it a bit. Were you surprised as well in terms of, you know, when you hear about redundancies, you think a job that is maybe old fashioned in some way or something that has been sort of overtaken. But when you think about an innovation team, I mean, were you surprised because that is something that is future looking? Yes, I was. But at the same time, innovation teams are kind of interesting. Some innovation teams are really embedded in the R&D of an organization. So particularly if you're like, say, an engineering organization, you know, R&D is, is really front and center. Whereas when you're in advertising, I mean, there's not always a money making job that an R&D team can do. And so we were kind of classed as back office um, because our job was more in being the connector within the company and outside the company. We were arguably marketing, you know, we were out there talking about what Ogilvy was doing, working out what other people were doing, bringing that information back in. You know, we were kind of that research element of working out what's going on in the world, but we weren't necessarily, we worked with a few clients, but they weren't of the same ticket size as some of the the standard clients that an advertising advertising company would have. So from a sort of business perspective, it, it made sense. They they needed to make cuts across the whole business. So of course back office was is going to be one of the first things to go because it's not directly making money. Is a good long-term thing? I don't know. But I think it was I was more surprised from a frankly from a personal perspective because without sounding egotistical, I saw myself as a valuable member of staff. And as much as they did, Ogilvy, to their credit, did try and place me in other jobs, but the jobs they were offering me were, frankly, you know, more junior than what I had. In some ways, I was a little bit insulted, so I didn't want to stay. So I think that was more what was surprising. And I think, you know, nowadays, or at least a couple of years ago, that narrative of if you are a high achiever and you're digital savvy and you're doing this, that and the other, you're going to be really wanted by organizations. And that's not always the case. It's more about being able to be nimble, in my opinion. And the fact that I was able to switch up has been the thing that's worked for me being freelance. But I wouldn't have considered being freelance had, it, had that not happened. Does that make sense? 
Totally. And I think a lot of people find that where they feel like they have so many skills, but sometimes the traditional setup of a company or corporation doesn't quite know how to house those skills or bring out the best in someone. And it's just interesting because now you've written this amazing book. And I mean, I learned so much in it. You have so much knowledge. And if there's better ways to communicate that knowledge, it's like, it's interesting. But I, I wondered um, if we could talk about hype, because obviously it's called Smoke and Mirrors, how hype obscures the future and how we see it. And the introduction I loved, and you basically kind of explain that what hype is, and also how, as a sort of society, we kind of enjoy being tricked. Mm-hmm. And you talk about m- magicians, and they're hired at fancy parties, aren't they, to... <laughs> think that that an illusion is real and I just wondered um yeah how did you get to this subject and why did you want to write a whole book on it because there's so much so much in here yeah I mean it originally came from a from a feeling of frustration frankly um I felt the the way that things were reported on in the media when it comes to science and tech but also the way startups pitch themselves you know being a science and tech reporter you spend a lot of time at conferences listening to startup pitches and when you're the sort of person that, you know, your job is to have a critical eye, but also, you know, I I read a lot around different topics and you hear a startup saying, we're going to be able to do this. And you're going, no, you can't. That doesn't make sense. And you know that they're not, they're not lying as such, but they are exaggerating and as such fooling people in the audience. And I just, I don't know, I've got a really, really strong sense of fairness. Like for me, I feel so uncomfortable when things are not fair. So I think that sort of idea of, of fooling really, really frustrated me. And, you know, obviously advertising, I mean, God, most of advertising is fooling, right? And and that doesn't mean that it's deliberately trying to lie, but it is trying to put a message into people's heads that's maybe not necessarily one they want or need or whatever. So it originally came from a feeling of frustration. But as I started doing the research for it, I, as you probably saw in the intro, I got to that conclusion, actually, hype is a tool and we, we need it sometimes. Actually, we need it a lot of the time, particularly with complicated technologies like quantum computing. But what we do need is we all need to be much better at working out how to spot hype, how to sit with difficult pieces of information, how to be okay with complexity, how to be okay with nuance, so that the hype doesn't fool us, but rather we have the context by which it's being used. And, you know, that that kind of, one of the reasons I called it Smoke and Mirrors is because I kind of think of fooling you know, to happen in three different ways. One is consensual fooling. So if you go to a magic show, you're walking in knowing you're going to be fooled or, you know, watching sci-fi or fantasy, right? Um, Then you have non-consensual fooling, which is called lying. (laughs) And then you have (laughs) hype, which I think of as accidental fooling. So as I say, the, the person is not deliberately trying to mislead or trying to lie or be evil or whatever. Obviously, there are some people like that, but I'm not focusing on them. But if, you know, the person receiving the message or the audience take it out of context for whatever reason that might be, they are fooled. And that's what we need to kind of combat. And that's what I hope writing about things in the way that I've chosen to do it hopefully will inspire and not make people feel negative about, but rather empowered to kind of do things a bit differently. Yeah, I, that was really interesting to me. And I know that we've spoken a lot when we last saw each other, we spoke about it, about that nuance and about how, because in the book, I think I underlined when you said hype like a tool isn't inherently good or bad. And it made mm-hmm. me think about how technology and social media isn't good or bad. It's literally just a tool and it's how we use it. And it's interesting when you say that hype can make us quite complacent in some ways. Like mm-hmm. in the book, you talk about how there is this sense of like technology will save us Hmm. and 
sometimes we have to unpick whether we're just following some optimistic hype. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hype is hype is a shortcut, right? That's that's I would say that's probably the best description of the tool that is hype. You're trying to shortcut understanding or shortcut belief or or whatever it is, and sometimes that's warranted. You know, if a, you know a company trying to you say to our scientists saying to government, we really need more funding for this really complicated science. And instead of having to do a big, long 50 page PDF, they explains it. Sometimes hype will be used as a tool to get that message across, which makes which makes sense. It's literally PR. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's advertising and PR. And we, we know that advertising and PR has problems, but it's also vital for the, the world that we live in, particularly with, with so much information that's going on. And that bit about complacency, I think sometimes hype is also a crutch in the sense that we want some of the things that we read to be true. We want AI to cure cancer. We want the the future of farming to be digital and we're going to be able to feed everyone by 2050 or whatever it is, 9 billion people by 2050. We want that to be true. Of course we do. But I think for me, the complacency element is then directly tied to a lack of action that essentially means that we don't fulfill on the promise that we believe. So if you take something like, hey, who's going to cure cancer? And we don't unpick that message and we don't think a little bit more deeply about what it is that we're saying, we're letting things carry on the way they are and we're not necessarily trying to make things better. So I think it's the lack of listening to where the problems are and particularly in industries where things are really exciting like space for instance my space chapter which is on you know commercialization of space when i sent it out to beta readers and to a few experts in the industry almost all of them came back being like oh wow like i feel like this is quite a negative chapter and i was really excited about the future of space and now i'm not so sure and i was like well good like we we shouldn't only look at an industry in a positive way we shouldn't only be excited by what's going on we need to be able to say well actually the space industry is the same as any other industry we're not excited by the mining industry so let's have a little look at what the problems are in that industry and see if they also exist here and then try and make it better so i'm not saying that everyone has to go around being negative about things as well as positive but i do think that we have to try and look at things from many different angles if we actually want things to be better otherwise we're just kind of keeping the status quo that might not be good yeah it's really true and it's funny because sometimes i think that people talk about tech more than the tech is actually sometimes being rolled out or made mm. because it's almost like a talking point but between humans we're like mm. oh my god did you hear about that thing and i noticed that self-driving cars has been on those tech lists of like things that will happen in 2000 and whatever for like mm. literally 10 years i haven't seen one yet <laughs> well they still got a long way to go but that doesn't mean that they're not happening i think it's but do you think I maybe I've fallen into the hype? I think it depends on what it is that you believe about it. And I don't think it's necessarily about falling into the hype in terms of believing that it's coming. I think when it comes to falling into the hype, it's more to do with whether or not you think it's good or bad. Because, you know, at the end of the day, self-driving cars are being worked on by many different companies. Lots of money is being invested into them. I think it would be so you'd be on the other side of the hype if you were saying oh it's never going to happen because that that would be also kind of going against real evidence sitting in front of you but i think where the hype is maybe sometimes more problematic when it comes to self-driving cars is that for instance we either talk about how amazing they're going to be in terms of cities or we talk about the problem with, with the trolley problem for anyone who doesn't know is this whole thing about having to be able to decide between saving one life versus five when you have to make a decision so you know you have a trolley going along a track it's either going to 
hit five people and they're definitely going to die or you can pull a lever and it, it hits one person instead do you pull the lever that's the kind of the, the, mm. the ethical question and it's you know if you've ever watched i robot with um is it will smith and oh, yeah. uh, you know he saves the he saves one person out of the car because they're more likely to survive versus the other or whatever it is it's the same sort of thing and that question comes up a lot with self-driving cars which you know is interesting but realistically that moral conundrum happens every single day in health systems right and it's not like it's different for for ai so we get caught up in those kind of conversations which don't really have a resolution and we don't talk as much about say for instance the quality of the data or you know is there going to be inherent bias in this or should there be inherent bias which particular algorithms are being used you know these kind of questions that are that are harder maybe not quite as sexy to talk about more difficult to fit into a nice headline but at the end of the day are much more crucial and frankly need the input of more people but instead we talk about the trolley problem and kind of get caught up in these arguably quite fun philosophical conundrums so i think it's it's not so much about the we're being told this is coming and it's not, although I do focus on that in the fusion chapter where I do think we have a problem with this timeliness thing. I think it's more when we get caught up in one particular narrative and it's the, the kind of what that results in, that narrative, whether it's it's not coming or it's definitely good or it's definitely problematic, these kind of absolutist ideas, that's where I see the problems. Got it. Yes, that makes so much sense. And I guess uh, why I think this book is really important, especially maybe to, well, not not just for young people at all, I mean, for literally everyone, but this idea of maybe we've lost the ability to be critical thinkers. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently. And also, just reading your book has reminded me of the lack of trust I think a lot of people do have. And it was interesting when you said that, I think there was a bit of research in the book that said that people still believe what's on TV, just over and above anything. And it's mm. interesting because it's like, oh yeah, it's on TV, so it must be real. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you think we can be more prepared for being more critical? Because I saw recently there was a lot of deep fakes online. Mm. I think it was like Boris Johnson speaking and it looked like him and it sounded like him. And I didn't know that was fake until someone pointed it out. Yeah, I think it's a difficult one because I I don't want to say to everyone, every time you see something, immediately don't believe it and then go and do a load of research and then come back and have an answer. Because frankly, we don't all have the time of day to do that for every single piece of information. <laughs> we'll get a notepad out every time I see a tweet. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, I'm just going to uh, go and uh, look up uh, some of the scientific papers around. I mean, that's not going to happen when you're on the tube, is it? More so because you don't even have internet if you're not in a, in a station. But the point I'm making is I think that it's not about immediately not believing, but it is about taking a little bit of a step back and looking at the context in which a message is being presented. So that might be, okay, who is saying this message? Where is it coming from? Or what is the message concerning? Is it to do with politics? Is it to do with science? Is it to do with history? Like bearing in mind what area is to do with what kind of problems exist within that area that might be influenced influenced or influential in that message. So say, for instance, to do with Boris Johnson's speech, well, you go, okay, well, it's in the topic of politics. We know that there are many different sides in politics. Okay, which quote-unquote side is this message coming from? Is it a pro-Boris side or an anti-Boris? You know, all these sorts of things. It's not difficult to very quickly ask those questions. You don't need to go and look up scientific papers on deepfakes to understand how to spot a deepfake, but you can ask very quick questions 
there are frankly anyone can do you don't have to be that intelligent I think it's just it's taking the time to have a little bit of pause and going from there and if it interests you yeah you can look at it even more deeply if it doesn't quickly look at what a few key trusted people they're saying gather three or four insights and you know if they're conflicting then maybe the answer is we don't know if they're all saying the same thing maybe it's well I can probably assume it's correct if they're all saying the other way vice versa but I think the biggest thing is this idea of like the pause and the consideration of the broader context in which a message is being said. And at the end of the book, I've, I've got in the conclusion, a sort of, you know, if this book was a how-to book, what would be the how to critically think list of things that you should do? And there's there's nine things in that list kind of around what is it that you do? But the sort of 10th thing, the kind of, not to give away the book, but I think this is the key point. The 10th thing is that, you know, don't follow a list, open your mind and think. Because following a list is also blinkering you too. And and I know that that probably sounds a little bit confusing. And to a lot of people, it's like, God, Gemma, where the hell do I start? You're just <laughs> saying all this stuff that's really complicated. But the point is, is that a lot of critical thinking, the key thing is it's okay to not know. It's okay to be like, do you know what? I actually don't understand this and I'm going to find a way of finding out. Or I'm not going to find out. This piece of information isn't enough for me, but I'm not going to necessarily immediately believe it inherently and share it with all my friends I'm, I'm gonna pause for a wee second until I work out you know whether or not I believe it based on other people's expertise so I think a lot of issues around hype particularly to do with science and tech is linked with this idea that people feel that they're not clever enough or intelligent enough or sciency or mathsy enough in order to take part and so there's this immediate oh, I don't understand that and I'm scared of it and I, I don't want to touch it. But when the reality of being someone in science and tech is that that's how you feel all the time. You know, when I'm yeah. when I'm interviewing scientists for pieces, I'm worried when I get on the phone that I'm going to come across as an idiot. I'm going to ask a stupid question. I'm going to be like, sorry, can you explain chemistry to me for a second, even though I'm meant to be a science writer? Do you know what I mean? And I think a lot of being a critical thinker is being out there in a dinghy without a paddle while a tsunami is coming to hit you. That's sometimes how it feels. And that's okay. It doesn't make you a stupid person or a lesser person. It means that you're being a better thinker by allowing yourself to not know and to then work it out if you so wish. It's so true. And I, I guess one of the reasons I think I really enjoyed your book as well is because even though it's about tech and science, it's also about words, isn't it? It's about how we speak and how we notice what people are saying or a, a repetition of a word. That's something that I've really noticed now is, I mean, even with what's going on at the moment with um, mm. COVID-19, with a statement that I read, and, and it was very, it, it laced in fear words, and I think it used something like, we will beat the enemy, things like that. Mm. And I was like, hmm, I was like, I don't like that language. And it was just, I think, even critically thinking around just what people are saying I mean, it sounds very obvious, but you know what I mean? Like the choice of words. It is. Words matter. I think there's two things here. First of all, I don't always necessarily think of my book as a science book, even though I'm a science writer and I'm clearly very interested in science. Because if you really start thinking about science and tech, you end up thinking about society, law, philosophy, anthropology, history, literature, all different things. And so I think of the book more as you say, about the power of words and the power of narratives to kind of shift society in many different ways. And obviously when a shift in society does mean an advance in science and technology, then of course words are going to matter in how we talk about it. But I think that the sort of second thing to say off the back of, of your point is this idea of 
the emotions and the shortcuts that words kind of give us. So, you know, fear, for instance, is very, very easy to instill with words. Assumptions are very easy to instill with words. Using metaphors that everybody understands in order to convey a more complex message instills some kind of emotion or some kind of understanding very quickly. And it's that shortcut that sometimes is really, really useful and really, really powerful for good, but other times can be really problematic. So for instance, you mentioned like this idea of the battling the coronavirus or COVID-19. And then, you know, you'll probably remember from the cancer chapter, I have a big argument around using war-like narratives in cancer and how that can be Mm -hmm. deeply problematic, both from instilling fear and then lack of critical voice in general audiences, but also guilt within patients, you know? Oh, I'm I'm not fighting hard enough or I'm dying in vain because I didn't win the battle. I mean, these are these are horrific ideas. For some patients, admittedly, they do feel a lot of power with this idea of fighting, but for others, it's really it's it's deeply problematic. So I, I think this being aware very simply and very frankly of the fact that words are very powerful, pen is matter in the sword, all these sort of ideas, and then looking at a narrative and going, are there simplified narratives in this? Are there powerful words? Why are these powerful words being used? Is it to try and sell a newspaper? Is it to try and convince me? Is it because it's warranted? And again, just having that pause to kind of consider. But you know, words are words are amazing and words are needed within science and tech. And frankly, I think that we need to be much better with them if we want people to understand science and tech to the extent that means society can move forward in a better way. But that also means on the flip side that we also have to appreciate that they have huge power that's not always being used in the best way. Definitely, definitely. And another thing I just wanted to ask you was, I know I probably have a lot of listeners who spend a lot of time online, or Mm. they are trying to get something off the ground. And I think something you're really good at is, and I've seen you do it in person when we're out and about where you, you don't ever challenge anyone in a aggressive way or anything, but you... I hope so. <laughs> you're, you're, no, but you're happy to go, oh, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that, actually. Like, here's what I think. Mm. And I think, and I'm talking from my own personal experience here, but I think I sometimes nod along so that I don't rock the boat and it's not awkward. And I think we need to get better at debating or not mm. even debating or arguing just like having a conversation and I think being in these times where you're cancelled if you disagree with anyone yes yeah I just wanted to touch on that do you have any tips for just you know gently saying sure I've got a different point of view actually oh gosh yeah I mean I'm very fortunate that I have a level of like inherent confidence I was always that kid that put their hand up to ask a question no matter what the class was on so I don't really have that sort of sense of shame around asking a silly question so that helps but I don't know I mean it's, it's I don't do that all the time and I pick my battles shall we say I think it's only it's all stuff that I think I'm particularly passionate about or I really do fundamentally feel I have a a core belief system in something and that I'm willing to go you know I'm hearing someone say something that's against that, that I'm not happy to kind of allow I also think the other side of it is that I I spend a lot of time trying to work out what I believe. I know that sounds really silly and probably quite pretentious, but I do like a lot no, of voice that's memos. So good. <laughs> I do a lot of voice memos to myself. And you know, when you I mean you'll know this, when you write a book, you sometimes end up asking yourself very fundamental questions about life, the universe, and everything. Particularly when you're writing about, you know, whether or not there are aliens on other planets, which is the final chapter of the book, you know, you end up asking yourself quite fundamental questions <laughs> of what it means to be human. But I don't know, and also because I work alone a lot of the time, I feel like I spend a lot of time working out what I think. So when it comes to debating something or talking about something, I normally sort of 
can pull on a few ideas that I've already thought or some questions that I have that I haven't answered yet that I'll ask the person and go, what do you think about this? Because I haven't worked out yet. So there's there's a kind of inquisitive nature of it that's not, I'm not doing it deliberately. It's, it's just kind of how I am. But when it comes to certain topics, I'm like, no, this is why I think this. I feel that I have actually thought about whether I've just made an assumption about this idea or whether I've actually analyzed it myself. So for instance, you know, are uh, female only panels fair in a world of mainly male only panels, right? That's an idea that I think probably originally I'd be like, yeah, they're completely fair. But then when I really start thinking about it and unpick it, my answer becomes a little bit more nuanced. So then I feel much more confident in being able to debate because I'd be like, well, I have thought about this, but then here's the problem here. And I have thought about that and there's the problem there. So what do you think? As opposed to just coming in with this very emotional kind of, oh my God, I can't believe you just said that. And that isn't right. That's not moral. (laughs) And then kind of putting up that kind of barrier immediately that doesn't really allow for discussion. But I don't know. I think also just, you know, I, I went to this really interesting dinner, a few of my friends of mine, I can't remember what they called it. I think it was called Strong Views Loose Lips or something like that. It was just a dinner party with six people. I would recommend people doing this because it was really fun. Just get a couple of your friends. That sounds great. Yeah. And you, you had to come with like a controversial opinion. And we we had the starter, we were all chatting with wine and whatever. But then once like, we started with the main, it was like, right, who's going first? Who's got their strong opinion? And, you know, the, some people had ones that were maybe not quite as emotionally controversial to begin with. Like, for instance, one said, I don't think anyone should use delivery or any kind of food delivery services. And, and we all laughed. But then when we talked about it, we started talking about class, about inequality, about time, about careers. You know, it went so much deeper and it was fascinating all the way through to some more slightly more controversial ones. Like, for instance, I, I, you know, I said, I don't really believe that love is that important. And, you know, so we got into these really deep, amazing conversations by allowing the person to say something that probably was going to create an immediate reactive knee-jerk reaction in everyone, but then allow them to make their case. And I thought that was, it was a fun night, you know, we, we all had quite a bit of wine, but it was an amazing kind of, I guess, template to allow for deeper, more interesting conversation. And I think if we were all a bit more open to that in more regular life, maybe it would make things easier. But, you know, some people say stuff to get that reaction, to get clicks. I mean, look at Piers Morgan, you know, like they're doing this stuff to get clicks, you know. So I think it's about also understanding the context by which someone is saying something that might give you that knee-jerk reaction and then go, okay, why am I having this knee-jerk reaction? And what do I genuinely believe about this? Allow yourself to kind of yes. sit with that emotion. Oh my God, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I that's why I love your work though, because I love thinking of things from two different sides and then making my mind up. I mean, mm. obviously everyone likes doing that, but I really love it. And and not to make this suddenly really fluffy, but on my astrology app recently. Oh gosh, Emma! Emma. Because I'm a <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a Gemini. I have at all times I think of things like separately. If you know, I have two thoughts at the same time. I'm going to say I'm also a Gemini based on. <laughs> see, my see I knew you were. But, yeah, but Emma, see, I don't. I'm, I'm a science. I'm a science writer, so I have I have a responsibility to to be like astrology is not uh, fundamentally proven by any scientific <laughs> method. I think I would I would say I think you're just a critical thinker. I think you know if that's what a Gemini is, then so be it. But and also it's not always about two sides. I think this is the other thing. It's about many different sides. There's not it's not always a spectrum that's linear. There's many different things that that come into stuff. You know, I had this incredible discussion um, yesterday with a philosopher about science fraud. I'm doing some work in, in the science fraud space at the moment. And he had written this paper along with some colleagues about the psychology of whistleblowing. And he was saying 
whether or not someone decides to whistleblow is dependent on whether they skew more towards loyalty or more towards fairness. If they skew more towards fairness, they're more likely to whistleblow. If they skew more towards loyalty, they're uh, more likely to not, you know, and to protect the colleague or whoever it is that they're, they're blowing the whistle on. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting idea. I do think that there's a spectrum that is kind of interesting, but there's so much more to it. You know, what about stability of job or what about the culture they come into and so on and so forth? And he he had they had covered this in the paper, but he was sort of making the argument that there was this kind of spectrum that was above everything else. And I was sort of saying, well, from my research talking to scientists, I think it's more to do with fear of losing job than loyalty to their lab. So there's always kind of a little mind map, if you will, like like a sort of dot in the middle with a question and then all these sort of lines coming in and out of it. And one of the things I kind of advocate for, one of the top tips in terms of critical thinking that I list at the end of the book is, can you create some kind of mind map of an issue or an idea or a narrative, you know? What does this look like to your granny? What does this look like to people in other countries? What does this look like to people who are living 50 years in the future? What are the politics around this? What's the history of this? You know, and again, not advocating for people to open up a textbook and spend hours trying to work out if one headline is correct, but very quickly allowing yourself to wear different hats and wear different people's shoes and look at an idea from different perspectives. So it isn't just two sides and where do you sit in a spectrum? It's where do I sort of morally land in amongst this map? Do I think that people in the future and protecting for, for the future is far more important than people currently, which kind of would be an argument if you really advocate for changing around climate change, you're, you would optimize there. Whereas, say, for instance, you, you optimize for people currently living you maybe wouldn't be as much of a supporter of not flying because you think, well, flying's important for current well-being of people on planet right now. So it's it's more, again, not a spectrum. It's just where you personally feel that you lie based on your values. But you can only do that if you look at the map, you know? Yes, and it could probably make us more understanding, empathetic people to do that. Well, you would hope so. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that was so, so interesting. Thank you so much. I just wanted to leave on a bit of a plug as well for something that you, I know that you advocate for. And I wondered if I could direct any listeners towards it, which is what you were saying about how you believe a lot of like scientific papers should be accessible to everyone. Mm. Is there anything we can all do about that? Or like anything, I don't know if there's something we can do or somewhere we can go to support that. If, if that's a new idea to you, not to just self-promote, but I did a TEDx talk on this in 2016. So you can go and have a little watch of that. If you. Oh, we'll start there. Yeah. If you want to have a little think about this idea of, of open access of science, then it's kind of explained in my, in my TEDx talk. There's, you can follow hashtag OA or hashtag open access. That tends to be where most of the sort of advocates, that's the sort of the hashtag that they use to kind of around their work. There's actually quite a lot of really good coverage in The Guardian about open access, which I would read as well if you're interested. In terms of what people can do, I suppose it's the same answer as I always have with these really complex science and tech issues where, especially if you don't work in the space, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, I've learned about fusion, now what? I think it's about awareness of the problem so that when someone like a politician or a CEO or a journalist writes about something, you can kind of go, ah, that's to do with that thing. Okay, I really like that policy. Maybe I might vote for them in amongst all the other things that they also have in their manifesto. Or maybe I'm going to retweet this or maybe I'm going to share it with my friends or whatever. I think it's just about trying to understand issues that you think are more important and then being able to you know, notice when people in power are advocating and then get behind whatever they're saying or doing or whatever. 
Thank you so much. That was really great. And congratulations on the book because I know I mean, even from reading it, it's like there's a lot of work in here. I can tell you worked super hard on this. <laughs> Thank you. It really is for anyone. And I wrote it not based on, okay, how do I make this super sciencey and clever sounding and whatnot? But I, I genuinely think that for me, the most important thing is that it's empowering for people. And so, you know, it's it's written in the same sort of level as like a Malcolm Gladwell book or Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Yes, that kind it's of very level. conversational. Yeah, exactly. And that was very deliberate. So I, I don't want to put people off by the idea of the lots of references. <laughs> no, I read it last night with my glass of wine. And if it was a really scary science book, I wouldn't have been able to do that. It was really great. And I learned a lot <laughs> in in your tone of voice, which I love. So Amazing. thank you so much, everyone listening. Go and buy a copy. And um, yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Emma. I so appreciate it.